Our gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 2. We are beginning in verse 18, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 6. This is God's Word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your word. We're grateful for all that you've revealed to us, and we ask now, God, that you would write these words upon our hearts, that you would transform us and change us from one degree of glory into another through the work of your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was 2003. His name was Haider Akbar. He was a Yale graduate, the son of an influential, wealthy Afghani family. And his family decides to return to Afghanistan because Harmid Karzai had restored the nation and was restoring order And so Haider Akbar returns as a young, very competent, gifted man, connections and resources, and he was going to start a non-governmental operation, an NGO. And so here is Haider returning to the nation to restore hope, to rebuild his country. He was full of expectation. He was full of hope. He was filled with promise. He was interviewed upon leaving for Afghanistan. Ten years later, he was tracked down, and we meet a very different man. Ten years of experience had produced incredible cynicism. He was no longer operating the NGO. 
And what Haider had seen is that powerful people who had influence in Afghanistan had guns. And that powerful men had militias. If you wanted to get things done, you had to operate the way that the world operated. He had very little hope. His optimism was crushed. Cynicism was in, interwoven in every sentence that he spoke. And he was heavily contemplating hiring his own militia, actively creating it in the moment of the interview, saying that this was the new path for him forward. And it was perplexing, it's puzzling, that this young man, highly educated, who said he didn't go to Yale to become a warlord, was now on the verge of becoming just that. A man who was at least part of the solution for that nation's woes was now becoming part of the problem. It speaks to the complexity of the situation, but it also speaks to the dynamic that Jesus was dealing with when he dealt with the group that we know as the Pharisees. Because they were the religious reformers of the day. They were part of the solution for Israel. They were calling Israel to faithfulness in her relationship with her God. They were calling her to purity and obedience to the law of Yahweh that had been revealed to Israel. And yet, the solution had become part of the problem. And we find this at the end of chapter 3, where the Pharisees, the religious reformers of the day, team up with a group called the Herodians in verse 6 in order to destroy Jesus. The great irony is that the Herodians were Roman collaborators who the Pharisees would have nothing to do with. And yet here they team up. And so this people, the Pharisees, who were part of the solution, who were full of religious zeal, love for the law of God, become opposed to the work of God in the world. And the question for us this morning is, how does that happen? The Pharisees didn't have horns. They were people just like you and me. They were trying to follow faithfully their God, but obviously they got some things wrong. And so it's crucial for us inside the church, amongst the people of God, to ask the question of ourselves, how does it happen? How exactly can people full of religious zeal end up resisting Jesus? There's four things that we see in the passage this morning. The first is this. Full of religious zeal, we can focus on our performance for the kingdom and not the gift of God's kingdom. Look in chapter 2 and verse 18, there's a controversy about fasting. The Pharisees noted that Jesus' disciples did not fast like they did. Now, it's important to point out that the Pharisees fasted twice a week. In the Old Testament, there is only one fast commended to the people of God, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees believed that by fasting twice a week, that they were going to speed up the day of God's return to Israel. And so through their obedience and through their aggressiveness and through their religious devotion and religious zeal, they were going to hasten the day of Yahweh's coming to Israel. 
And so they were heavily focused upon performance and policing other religious groups that looked like they were trying to encourage reform. And so they confront Jesus. And they say, why do your disciples not fast like us? If you're committed to the same project we are, to the reform of Israel and to the great day where God will make everything right, you should fast like we do. That's the context of this discussion. And this is the problem for the Pharisees. So focused upon their performance, everything was still future for them. It was all future expectation. And they couldn't realize that the kingdom was being fulfilled right in front of them. Jesus' answer to them is very provocative. Listen again to what he says. He says, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? It was understood in Jewish law that during a wedding, all bets were off and that you didn't have to follow certain of the customs of the law. It was a time of celebration and partying. It was joyful. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And the Pharisees would have understood this that this was part of their culture and their tradition. And Jesus was pointing to the fact that the bridegroom, and this is once again an echo from Isaiah 40 through 66, where the return of God to his creation is compared to a bride and a groom. The bridegroom has returned. And so focused upon performance, focused upon hastening the day of the king, they had missed the gift of the king just there in front of them. They were blind to it. And friends, this is what so often happens to us. When we become myopic and our Christian life becomes about our performance and what we must do and our duty, and we get lost in the day-to-day grind of obedience, and we begin to focus more upon the obedience and what we're going to receive from God because of that obedience, and we get lost And you see that Jesus' disciples were celebrating. They were in the presence of the king. Jesus just indicated that there will be a day where fasting will once again be appropriate when the bridegroom is taken away. But that doesn't take away the joy of the disciples either. That we do live in this interesting part of history where there is joy and celebration because the king has come and he's been installed and yet we're waiting for the king's return. And so we know both joy and we know sorrow. We know fasting and we know feasting. But friends, in our religious zeal at times, it's easy for us to lose that balance and to become all focused upon the fasting and to forget the feasting that erupts into the creation because the bridegroom is here, because the king has arrived, new wine has filled the skins, that it can't be held by the old order of things. And religious zeal can lose all of that. And so in our fervor, in our obedience, in all of our passion for serving God, may we not forget the gift of the kingdom by over-focusing upon our performance for the kingdom. Second way that we can resist Jesus is that full of religious zeal, we can miss the forest 
for the trees. All of these controversies with the Pharisees were about the Sabbath. And if you turn over to the second of the stories in verse 23, Jesus was walking with his disciples. He had walked at a distance. Obviously, he was cutting through a field, and some Pharisees were watching his behaviors. And what they see is they see that Jesus' disciples begin plucking grain on the Sabbath, and that was outside of the regulations. And so they ask this question, verse 24, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds in verse 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Fascinating, odd story that Jesus responds with. It actually is found in 1 Samuel 21. And the interesting piece about the story is it is about King David, but it was before David was publicly installed and coronated as Israel's king. He had been anointed by the prophet. He was set apart as the king, but Saul the usurper was on the throne, and David was on the run. And some recognized that David was the true king, and some didn't. And that's why Jesus tells this story. His answer about the Sabbath is completely to elude the question. And he tells a story rather about the king being present in their midst, and yet they didn't recognize it. That they were chasing him around, attempting to nitpick him and catch him in some trap. And Jesus says, you're failing to recognize that the true king is here, that he's come to reign, and yet it's under the radar, and it's a mystery in many ways. And lost in their performance, lost in their focus upon the regulations, they were missing the greater reality, that the trees had blinded them to the forest in which they were in, that the God was now acting in a great new way. And friends, it's easy for us to slip into this, where we simply take certain parts of the Bible and we begin to emphasize them, and we miss the entire story, the story of what God is doing to renew all things and how He is crushing evil and sin and death in order to restore the creation to what it always was intended to be. A few weeks ago, I was in a conversation with someone, and they asked me a question about what Bible translation I used. And I told them that, uh, that our church's habit was to use the English Standard Version. And he asked why, and I said, well, it's a good contemporary translation along with many others. I could tell that that answer wasn't satisfying to him, and I said, well, what translation do you use? And he said, well, I use the King James Version. I said, well, you know, that was a good translation in 1611, and, uh, and uh, it was hot back then. And... Uh, <laughs> And they really had done some good work, but there were also problems with the King James Version translation that some of the texts that were used were slightly corrupted, and it was using this uh, apparatus that has been updated, and we now know we have better translations of the original. And uh, so, but my friend was convinced that the King James Version was the marker for orthodoxy. And so he asked me a question about a certain passage, and, and I gave the best answer I could. 
And then he asked me another question. And then all of a sudden I denied hell and I denied the existence of angels and all kinds of things because I didn't believe in the King James Version. And I was scratching my head going, I don't think I've ever denied the existence of those things. And friends, that's an extreme aversion, an extreme example. But that is where we can easily get inside a Christian culture. Is that we choose our little pet hobby horses, the things that we're passionate about. It can be about the way that children are schooled. It can be about the way that we do our quiet times. It can be about the way we worship. It can be about all kinds of things. And we begin to form our identity and we derive some kind of self-worth around these things. And we begin to use them as an axe and a sword against other people. That's what the Pharisees were doing with the Sabbath. That's the system that they were creating. And Jesus doesn't approve of it. He says, no, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the fact the king has come, he's intruded into the creation, that he's making everything new. Look at the healings, look at the exorcisms. And then ultimately he's going to point to his death and to his resurrection as the source and cause of all that newness. And our religious zeal can deeply get in the way. Now the third thing is, is that full of religious zeal, we are prone to add to what God requires, missing God's intent. The Pharisees around the commandment, the fourth commandment, to observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, they were obsessed with taking the positive command, which was to exist for the good of God's people, to give them a day of rest from work, and they added all kinds of prohibitions to that command. And so there was a long string. There were actually 39 commands that the Pharisees attached in order to detail what it was to properly observe the Sabbath. 39. The attempt was to legislate every circumstance, every possible circumstance, so that you would know what to do in order not to break the Sabbath. Jesus' answer to them is interesting in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And this is Jesus' point. As he hearkens back to the original creation story where God forms the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rests. And that the Sabbath was given to man as a rest to enter into God's rest and that we would cease from our work, and that we would have peace and harmony, and creation itself would be restored, and then the work week would begin again. That was the picture. And that we were not handed over to serve the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was rather to serve us. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and all their multiplication of the commands, and all the traditions that they had built up about what you could do, and what definitely you could not do on the Sabbath, that you're missing the point that you are serving the Sabbath and the Sabbath is not serving you. And easily in our religious devotion, things slide into this path. And rather than God's commands being something that are life-giving, they become burdensome. And oftentimes we grow angry at God, but it's not His fault at all. It's the own, our own traditions that we attach to Him. When I was exiting college ministry and entering into seminary, I remember sitting down with 
one of my mentors. And I was dealing with some issues of legalism where I felt like I was falling into these very traps that the Pharisees inhabited. And so I was asking my, my mentor about how to deal with some of the legalism. And he told me a story. He said, well, I once had an older pastor, and I was talking with him about my daily Bible reading. And he said, so I told uh, my pastor that I read my Bible first thing in the morning. He said I was attempting to impress him. And then my pastor asked me if, uh, if I went to the restroom first before reading my Bible. And I said yes. And he told me then that I was putting the flesh first. And that I needed to read my Bible and then I could go relieve myself. That that was the proper order that if I was to obey God. And so then my mentor, he looked at me and he said, he said, Chuck, the way to get over legalism is to get run over by a stronger legalist. And then you realize just the insanity, the lack of humanity, that it doesn't work. That it's traditions that add on to God's Word, that they're not even what God has said, and that there are all these, they're like barnacles building upon a pier, and you lose sight of the wood and the actual original structure, and it all becomes defaced and marred. And friends, that's so often where religious zeal leads us, that in becoming passionate about serving God, we try to make it manageable. And so we want to maximize the law. And so we add to it, and we end up minimizing it. We, it loses its force. It loses its beauty. It loses its power. And this is oftentimes how we become known in the broader community, is around these extra things that we've added. And this is not the way it's supposed to be, that God's commandments are for our good that they build boundaries that are healthy and constructive, that the Sabbath, we're not supposed to serve it, that it serves us, that it's something that frees and liberates. And so Jesus addresses this with the Pharisees. The final way that our religious zeal gets in the way of Jesus is that full of religious zeal, we can end up with hard hearts resisting the king's work. This is the great and the sad irony that takes place in this passage. In chapter 3, in verses 1 through 6, Jesus enters the synagogue, and there is in front of him a man with a withered hand. We don't know how the hand came to this situation. The man is brought to Jesus. Jesus says, come here. And then Jesus knows that the Pharisees are watching him to see whether he would heal the man. They wanted to catch him. They wanted to entrap him. And so Jesus asked a question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus knew that the Sabbath was about rest. It was also about redemption, pointing to the fact that God rested from redeeming all things. And Jesus heals the man. But the Pharisees were silent. They wouldn't give an answer. And in verse 5, we learn that this angers Jesus. The unrighteousness of the moment. The fact that they were being duplicitous. That they were plotting against Him. 
that they were intending to kill him for giving life on the Sabbath. There's a great irony that the Pharisees break the Sabbath by going out and plotting with the Herodians. That they were interested in destroying life on the day of God's rest. It's an interesting phrase that Mark used. It says, Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. And this is the phrase, of course, that is used of Pharaoh during the Exodus story. And Mark echoes it very intentionally here. And he's telling the story that the Pharisees are the new slave masters, that lost in all of their law observance and all of their traditions and all that they weighed upon the people of God and their reform movement and how they policed the people, that they were the slave masters, demanding more bricks without giving any straw, that they were the ones holding the people in bondage and that the people needed to be set free and that Jesus was the true king who could do so that they were hardened in heart, they grieved the heart of God, and God is actually angry with them because the people who were part of the solution had become the problem, and so Jesus must confront them. And in our passage, as we see that religious zeal can pollute and that religious zeal can distort the church and disfigure the people of God, and we lose the whole purpose, and then we end up even resisting God's work to heal and restore and renew. They didn't want this man with a withered hand to be healed on the Sabbath. We all have found ourselves there at times. We all have found ourselves resisting God's work in the world in our own self-righteousness. And so what is ultimately the answer for us? Ironically, the Pharisees set out the plot line. They held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus was, of course, conscious of this. He had already spoken of the day when the bridegroom would be taken away, and he's pointing forward to the day when he would ascend to his cross. He would take up his throne and that he would be a suffering servant who would reconcile the world. Whether you identify as a Herodian and one who's on the outside, or whether you identify as a Pharisee and one who's on the inside, that he would reconcile any who look to him in repentance and faith to God. That he would free us from our religious zeal and all the ways that we mess that up. That he would free us from our sins. And he would guide us in this new way of God working in the world. That's what Jesus holds out to us. That's the way Jesus takes people who are a problem and translates them into a solution in the world, that he would use us for his good, and they'd use us to transmit his presence to all the world. And so it's our prayer that we be that, that we not get lost in our religious zeal, that the cross would be the very ground and foundation of our boasting in front of God, that that would be our confidence, that our confidence would not be in all the things that we do, that our confidence would not be found in all that we do to hasten the kingdom, but that our confidence is in Jesus and his death on our behalf.